What do we do after the fires, the floods, the pandemic? We live in a crisis-rich environment. And how do we learn and prepare for next time? My name is Will Small and this is Olivia Wolf. We believe stories are one of the most powerful learning and evolutionary tools we have. And this, this orange glow is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, this is not good. So we've listened to people's stories about disaster recovery, community resilience and mental well-being. From firefighters to clinical psychologists. There was a family that were actually um, protecting their house and they actually gave up their, their Christmas lunch. Small business owners to communities who have experienced loss and communities that have survived together. It's not often that people intentionally go out of their way to get to know their neighbours these days. These are conversations about what has happened, what may happen and how we can prepare for the future. It was an ordeal that we'll never forget. This is Emergency Ready Now. This podcast is presented by Central Coast Council and lead by Story and jointly funded by the Commonwealth and the New South Wales State Government under the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. The views expressed are the opinions of the individuals interviewed. Please be aware these topics may be sensitive, particularly if you have personally been affected by bushfires. If you need to talk to someone, you can always call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. You've probably heard the expression, put your own mask on before putting on someone else's. If you've ever been on a plane, you'd recognise this from a safety spiel given by an air hostess or air steward. The point is, in the case of an emergency, it's important to put on your own oxygen mask, aka take care of yourself and your own needs before then attending to the needs of others. The theory goes that when you are cared for, it means you can go above and beyond to support your family, look out for your neighbours and be a positive force in your community. In this episode, we had the privilege of talking to two amazing RFS members. We had a chat to them about how they take care of themselves and the importance of mental health when operating in their field. We spoke to Michelle Biddle, who is the captain of the Kilcare Wagstaff Rural Fire Brigade, and who has been involved in the brigade for 22 years. Michelle is passionate about her own mental health and the mental health of her brigade. She has spearheaded a project called the Community Resilience Plan in Kilcare that joins together community groups and puts them on the same page in the event of a disaster. Michelle has gathered so much wisdom about fostering connection where you live, and spoke to us about the beautiful, complex duality of nature. Take a listen. My life as Michelle Bidolf. Okay, it's busy. I've got two girls, Jess and Mia. Jess has just finished her HSE, Mia, Year 10. And they, um, I love them my life, love them. I work at Rumbalara Environmental Education Centre. And I'm the captain of the local fireys. I'm the president of their swim club. And I'm just always busy. Really? Mm. That's my life. It sounds very busy to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you're the captain of the Kilcare Rural Fire Brigade. What is rewarding about your role and what do you love about it? Meeting all the people in the fireys. So I joined in 98 when I first moved to Kilcare Heights mainly to meet other people and knowing that there's bush all around us and if there was a bushfire would want to know what to do rather than just being scared and 
have no idea. So we joined up and I've been there ever since. To start with, I thought, oh, yeah, I'm not going to be a firefighter. I'll just make sandwiches or whatever. And um, But you do the training and you meet the people, see how it grows. It's like it's just a big family. There's people like your uncles that annoy you <laughs> but um, you love them as well because you know they've got a good heart. And um, we have such a range of people in our brigade. It's very reflective of the community. So we have our younger juniors, our kids, through to your day crew, which is your all your retirees and everyone in between. A lot of professionals are in the brigade and, um, yeah, I just love it. Mm. Just a, yeah, such awesome. a variety of, of people. Sounds like a very rich experience of community. It is. It is, definitely. Yeah. I'm sure you've got countless stories from uh, 22 years or however long it's been there since 1998. Um, are there any particular stories that just stand out as some really significant moments that rise to the surface from that time? I suppose it would be like when we've had over the last few years some two major Pretty Beach fires. Plus we've had a few storm damage um, occurrences where we've basically been, well, with the storm damage we've been blocked off to the rest of the Central Coast, so we had to deal with it. Mm. With the Pretty Beach fires, you had all the community who were frightened or protecting their homes and how the community as a whole can pull together and help each other out. And to be part of that is pretty, pretty special. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. Awesome. In what ways did you see the community pull together and, and help each other out? It could be as simple as waggy hall which will say everyone can come down and charge their phones because we've got power or there was one storm damage where half the area which is fed through a different electricity line um were out of power for over a week while the other half did have power so the other half would say come over my house have dinner have a shower Mm. um we'll help you out so that was that's pretty special to see that and um Mm. Yeah, it's it's yeah. powerful, isn't it? it sound, there's something in um, being a shared community with a common uh, thing that you're working, you know, towards together and, yeah. and overcoming some of the situations. amazing how that brings people together. Um, so often we're just doing our individual thing, but when something is sort of on the horizon that we all have to face together, it's amazing what that brings out. Um, so we've heard a little bit about, you know, Killcare being a, a bit of a, a leader in this space, I guess, on the coast and being a bit unique in some of the initiatives. Am I correct that you've been part of bringing together uh, the Surf Life Saving Club and, and the Fireys and a few groups to kind of have an integrated response in some of these situations? Yeah, so last year, it's been in my mind for a little while, and then last year when we had those catastrophic days, mm. I really noticed how frightened people were in the area and how much they didn't know. So where, you know, the fireys look after you know, bush bushfire stuff, but um, they were calling the surf club about, oh, we're going to evacuate to to your place or when should I leave? And they'd ring up Killy Cares and say, give us advice. And so the surf club and the Killy Cares will then email me or call me and we're like, well, this is wrong. They shouldn't be calling those people. They should, you know, well, one, they probably should already know what to do because we've been – trying to educate them for many, many years, but people ignore it because they think I'll deal with it when it comes. Um, so I emailed 
all the like the head of the Surf Club, Killy Cares, Wagstaff to Kill Care, Progr- oh, Community Association, and the Hardys Bay Residence Group. So we held a meeting and went, okay, let's do this as a united front. Mm. Um, developed, like start to develop plans. Still relatively in the early stages. So we got together um, after those catastrophic days. Okay, how are we going to deal with this? Um, how are we going to get the message across properly? Then COVID hit and, the, oh, no, before that, storm damage. And so while I was sort of doing the fire stuff, then the storm damage happens and we do a lot of the storm damage as well. But then the WAG Stuff to Kill Care Community Association, they sort of took the lead of opening Waggy Hall, inviting people down to Waggy Hall. Um, then COVID hit and then Killy Cares then stepped up for that and we were all sort of working together behind the scenes but then they stepped up and took the lead on that about helping people in the community that way. Now we're back in the fire season, so we got together on the SOGO, how we're going to deal with this. We're going to have another meeting beginning of December. Um, we're putting together a website with um, just just a basic website about emergency, how we're pulling things together, all that sort of stuff, um, as well as uh, we put a, a thing in the newsletter, uh, the Talking Turkey, about like, numbers you should know. And um, we're putting a um, – what else are we doing? Oh, yeah, a sort of a one-pager to go to all the holiday houses, rentals, because a lot of those in Kilcare. A lot of Airbnbs now. Apparently mm-hmm. there's like 25% in our Airbnbs, yeah, wow. I heard. I read on Facebook or whatever the other day, one of the news websites. So that – we haven't got onto the Airbnbs yet. Um, but, you know, just a lot of people come to the area and they're going to freak out if – if there's a fire and they don't know what to do, where our places of last resorts are. So, yeah. Sounds like you have a great skill of building connections and then building community where you live. Um, if someone wanted to replicate that, what would you say are good, good ways of going about that, where they live? Just being open and be able to talk to people, you know, build those relationships. So... Within our area, obviously I've been there for a very long time, so I've built those relationships over time. And um, I don't don't know, people are open to communication, I guess, and be able to join people together and, I don't know, it's just something you do. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it sounds to me like it's very clear, Michelle, that you are um, a person-focused person and that you kind of just naturally – uh, are looking out for others and seeking to build those connections. It sounds like for you it's just almost like just what you do. It's just kind what of who you, do. you are, yep. um, which is awesome. And part of your role in the in the fire brigade is to kind of look out for the well-being of your members, of your team. You know, you've got to kind of make sure that everyone's uh, in a good place and able to function together. Um, yeah, what does it look like for you kind of looking out for other people in that, that way? Do you kind of feel like you have um, – things you're looking for in terms of whether people are maybe not in a good place or, or how they're taking care of their mental health? What does it look like to kind of be someone developing people in that sort of space? Yeah. Being like our brigade's growing and growing every year and that's great. Um, and really getting to know the people, talking to the people, getting to understand where they're from, where they're going. And it's, it's amazing over the last only a few years that people are really starting to open up about their mental health issues if they've suffered depression in, you know, in earlier years and and to sort of – and there's quite a lot of people in the brigade who have got 
mental health issues in regards to depression and, and so forth and anxiety. And for them to feel confident that they can express that to me sort of makes me sort of, I don't know, it's nice to know that they trust me as well. And so you sort of get to know them sort of like the baseline, sort of, you know, this is your everyday, what you like. And then to be able to, if they become quieter or if they don't come down to the fireys for a little while or over the COVID period, because we have so many members, I just couldn't be in contact with everyone. So we split the members up into small groups. And so my senior deputy, which is Chris, and then I've got a range of deputies, we allocated a small group to each of those people. And then they were trying, They their, the aim of them was to keep in contact with them. How are they going, you know? And there was a lot that sort of came out with that as well, which then they would sort of feedback to me, sort of, so we can keep an eye on that. Um, recommending um, critical incident stress services for those people who who went through the last bushfires and were struggling a bit because, you know, we've got one member who went to some bushfires but reminded them of when their house almost burnt down in fires so many years ago. Mm. And, you know, giving them the appropriate help, talking. We have all our debriefs as well, informal ones and formal ones as well. And just knowing your people, really, because you want people to stay in mm. the brigade. You don't want them to leave because they're feeling unhappy or they're in a bad spot. Just giving them, you know, when one person was losing their job, you know, just give them some space, being there for them. Um, but when it's time to come back, you know, to increase, just don't put the pressure. You have to be here every single week when you know that it's, they're not in the right headspace. Mm. Um, it's just really getting to know your crew, yeah. really. And it was just important because when you're out in the fire, we're in dangerous situations and we're out there to look after each other. Yeah. And if one person, you know, is down, you've got to build them up mm. because we're a team. For sure. Did you feel like you experienced that from others in your earlier years in the brigade and that's part of what maybe kept you in it? No, not really. Um Oh, like everyone's friends, mm-hmm. but I can't ever recall anyone keeping their eye out on my well-being. Mm-hmm. I guess, and um, just as you grow as a person, and then you know, being a teacher myself, mm. and as you know, just out in the community, just that the increased awareness of mental health mm. um, issues is sort of is important. You know, so you sort of. Yeah, we all mature, we all grow, and you want, okay, I didn't get that, not that I necessarily needed it, but you'd like to offer that to other people. So I just like to talk to people. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like something that's very close to your heart and therefore allowed you to kind of go, oh, I don't see this here, how do I how do I upskill other people or how do I make this a community where this is the focus? Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested too... Um, sounds like you put a lot of work into looking out for other people's mental health. How do you care about your own mental health? Oh, well, my job. Um, we all know that being out in nature improves your well-being. And so my day, every day, I'm out taking kids on bushwalks. And like the beginning of the day today, you know, my, my headspace was, you know, you know, it was all right, but it wasn't top-notch. 
but then I had a day out in the field with the kids out in nature and by the end of the day you're just like, you know, you're smiling and you're laughing and you have, a, a you know, a good time. Time to step back and just have a, you know, like we have our special spots on the excursion where you just sit back and you just listen to nature, you know, and just, I don't know, have time for me. Not that I have many times for me, but you just got to do it sometimes. So, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like a few of the conversations we've had, it's been this interesting mix of, on the one hand, we're trying to prepare for these natural crisis events, whether that's fires or floods or things like that. But there's also everyone we've been talking to who's in those roles has such a deep appreciation for the beauty of nature and that, you know, part of um, that preparedness also comes with just a, a deep sense of on the on the good days, like let's enjoy the bush and yeah. let's actually see it as just such a gift. Yeah. Um, so really interesting to have that mix there. Um Thinking about this year, which has just been kind of bam, 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 one thing after another. Yeah, what else could it give us? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's been um, crazy, right? And obviously there's going to be some ongoing kind of ripple effects of that and people continuing to process that for a while. What do you see as some of the kind of maybe learnings that for, for you and your team and your community you'd like to see people take into the years to come? I guess for the community to increase their knowledge, right? Like we can always say be prepared, but they're never prepared, you know. Well, some people are. Um, But make them realise, you know, you really need to step up. You know, we're not going to have a fire truck at every single house. Um, About knowing that there's people out there that can help you and assist you. Know that things will go wrong, but we can get through it, you know. There is such so many great people out there that have really stepped up this year and um, they will always be there. You just have to find them and um, be knowledgeable, be prepared. You know, there's people out there and talk and don't be afraid to talk to people. You know, don't don't hide it, just don't bury it down the side. Do you have a like a story, Michelle, of a time where uh, an event has happened but everything has kind of just gone the way it should? in terms of, of, of the team, the response, the people in the community. Um, just wondering if you have any kind of actual stories that come to mind where you're like, yeah, that's a really good example of what it can look like when things are, you know, done the best that they can be, obviously with a lot of unpredictable factors around the edges. A lot of our pretty beach fires have always worked out pretty well. Um, we, as a brigade, you know, we step up. And we've got all the other brigades that come and support us. The community stepped up. Um, we didn't lose any houses. We protected the community. The community stepped up. Yeah. There was, you know, we had the helicopters. We had the, you know, all the different fireys. We all worked together. And, yeah. Totally. That's awesome. Um, I get the sense that you are great at building community do you have any tips on how to build like positive team culture within within communities? Within communities. Well, there's a lot of different people in a community and they've all got their different little niche. And it's about trying to find your niche. You're going to like at Kill Care, they're going to build start a men's shed. So that's going to be the niche of obviously for people who like men's shed stuff, you know. You got you find your niche of you know churches if you you know and they're great for 
the people who go in that way. You got your, all your community association, you got your residence groups, you got your, your surf club. There's lots of different s- groups for different niches, and it's just about trying to find the niche you you sort of fit in to. Find yeah. your tribe. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Find your tribe. It's yeah. not going to be the same for everyone, but yeah. if you find where you fit, then yeah. and and I love. You know, at the beginning you described it like a big family and yep. I imagine people can experience that in lots of places and so many of those benefits of community resilience, positive mental health, yep. that comes when people find that space where they fit and get involved. That's right. And I mean, we have people join the fireys and realise it's not for them mm. and that's okay. Mm. Um, we got two people who joined um, earlier this year because of the fires and they said, what can we do? And so they've joined up but they haven't come back either. But they have contacted me and said, no, we don't think firefighting's for us. And, I, you know, I, I said we don't – there's a lot of things that you don't have to do, which is firefighting. Um, but then they said, oh, we're interested in something else. So then I referred them to Killy Cares. And so they're now getting involved in Killy Cares. So there's – it might not work out your first group you join, but there's you just have to find your – as you said, your tribe mm. and then work with it. So I'm interested in your perspective as a teacher – working with young people in environmental education and then thinking about, you know, your work with the fireys and and kind of disaster response and, you know, relief and all of that. As you think about young people that you work with today and you think about what the future might look like if there's more climate events and kind of more uncertainty, you know, what do you want those young people that you work with today to, to be able to take into the future? What are the skills or values or like, you know, perspectives that you think are most important for our young people to learn? Well, being an environmental education, educator, the main thing is the connection to place, your connection to the environment. And once you feel that, then a lot of your values will, will just thrive, you know, when it comes to protecting, protecting the environment, your well-being when you're in the environment. Um, we're going to have bushfires. We're going to have floods. We're going to, we're going to have another COVID at some point. And it's it's just important for people. Like today, the kids, we had leeches and, you know, we went on big bushwalks and there was a big fat snake with a some sort of animal with a tail hanging out its mouth, you know. But at the beginning of the day we had, was actually mainly the teachers scared, but, um, but the kids, they were a bit nervous about what was ahead of them. But they went through the day and they finished the day with a big smile on their face. So they've built that bit of resilience up from just experiencing what they did today. And so they will go, okay, I could do that. I could do that another time. So just little experiences, you build up that resilience and you build on it and you build on it and you build on it and create values as you go. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that connection to place is so important but also something that maybe a lot of us struggle with like you know the part of the technological modern world like we almost forget where we live because we can live so much of our life behind a screen um yeah do you have any i don't know just advice for people that are feeling a bit disconnected from place but want to actually build into that but they don't have the benefit of being in one of your classes just get out there there's national parks there's council reserves the coslands all that just get out there go for bushwalk go to the beach Go to the Aboriginal sites. Just there's, It's just out there. It's free. Mm. Go for a walk. Sit down. Find your magic spot and just be. Love it. And it will come. 
Michelle understands the importance of your own mental health and how spending time in the outdoors can improve your well-being. Even though Michelle has seen some of the worst that nature has to offer, she can still appreciate the great beauty and duality of the Australian landscape. Chris Radford, on the other hand, shared with us about his experiences with communities all over Australia and how when tensions rise and the most dangerous things come to pass, it can also bring out the worst and the best in people. Chris Radford joined the RFS when he was 16 to help him earn the bronze, silver and gold for his Duke of Edinburgh. Fast forward 26 years and Chris is still an active member and is the senior deputy captain of his local bridge. Chris is also a member of the New South Wales RFS Remote Area Fire Team, or RAFT for short, and has travelled around New South Wales, the ACT, Victoria and Tasmania to provide help to communities in disaster areas. Chris shared with us some of the most vivid memories that have stayed with him through his 26 years of service, and the unique way his teams have experienced these touching and shocking moments. We were talking before, um, we were wondering how you do juggle, you know, volunteering for the RFS and the rest of your life. It does seem very busy. It is, yeah. Look, I guess one thing with the RFS, it's very flexible. You do what you can do and, and uh, I mean, it's one where, you know, we have a, a, a weekly commitment on a Wednesday night where we'll you know, meet at our station and, and outside of that, again, if a fire call happens, you know, if you're available, you go, but there's no expectation um but you know, obviously you know with what we went through last you know summer um it's one way i guess you just prioritize and you know you have to give up some things to you know to help the community so um mm. it's something that yeah i guess you just over the years you get used to adapt and the family knows you know um so parents and things come out to help um you know to assist yeah well um it's interesting we we're just reading a little bit about you and some of your backstory and um, you did the the Duke of Edinburgh when you were sixteen, so just one year older than your fifteen year old now, um, and uh, joined the RFS as part of that process, mm. and since then have continued to be part of the RFS um, for you know decades. Um, why have you stayed? What's been the the thing that happened when you were sixteen years old that's continued to carry through to this point? Yeah, and I guess while we're talking, it's quite an interesting. So I mentioned with my fifteen year old, he's actually doing his Duke of Edinburgh, and he's actually chosen the RFS as well. So he's actually, wow. as of two weeks ago, just now qualified as a, a basic um, firefighter level. So, um, yeah, interesting um, that, yeah, he's decided to follow, I guess, in my footsteps in that um, from that side of things. But, yeah, look, from my perspective, yes, it's been a long a long time and I, and I did choose to, for about an 18-month period, um, you know, leave the RFS just to concentrate, particularly when our first um, was born, just to, you know, got uh, very busy um, but you know outside of that I guess really it's the, the sense of giving back to the community um, and I've, I've definitely seen the community at its worst and at its best as far as you know how they react to natural disasters um, and it's something I guess just that self-accomplishment um, when you do go out and you and you know achieve the result that you wanted to achieve um, and also also that camaraderie that you have with you know people within your brigade and I guess I'm fortunate there's been you know, people within my own brigade that have been there since before I started and, you know, a mm. lot that have come along since. So, 
you know, people that you build that relationship over, you know, 20 plus years. Um, and also, again, putting underneath those stressful situations, you, you tend to learn a lot about each other. Mm. Yeah, I think that's pretty awesome. I think there aren't many people that can say that they've volunteered, you know, for that kind of length of time in an organisation. I imagine the benefits of depth of community and connection uh, is huge. Yeah, look, it's definitely, I mean, even within the service as well, I mean, you know, you go to a, an incident and that's, you know, I guess, with my, you know, there's our brigade and then there's, you know, the other part of the RFS that I'm involved with within Raft, which is the remote area firefighting that actually sits to the side of your normal brigade activities. And it's one where, you know, because I've been in it so long and experienced so many different um, environments within um, the RFS, whether it be fire or floods or, you know, storms, you know, they all take different skill sets that, um, mm. you know, to be able to achieve the goals. So it's one where, yeah, it's while I still feel, you know, young at my actual age, but when you get look, you know, looked upon at those type of incidents as a senior person and, you know, they'll always look for your leadership over and above others just mm. because of that history that you've had and, and seen yeah. the different things, so... I think it's awesome too that now your son's joining that same community. Yeah, look, it's a um, added a definitely a different dynamic. It was kind of one where I mean I've been so used to, and my wife um, she did it, get involved with the RFS before we had kids, so she was you know kind of um, you know went through the different levels of of um, uh, up to uh, breathing apparatus, so where we actually can enter buildings under um, with breathing apparatus on, so. She was very involved and then, you know, we had our first child and, and she decided to step back and, um, you know, for, to take, you know, so at least one of us could go, you know, out onto the fires. But, um, you know, it, it, you know, with him being there, it's one where I guess it, um, it's one where, it's, you know, you've got to, at some stages you wear your kind of parent hat and it's, other times you've got to kind of take it off and just treat him like a, you know, a normal member. So it, um, it's taken a little while to get used to. Um, and having to kind of treat him as though I would treat others within the brigade rather than, you know, my son. So mm. That's a pretty cool part of your legacy. I feel like I would love to have your family, like if I was in an emergency situation, because, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're skilled, your wife is skilled, now your son is skilled, like we would have a super family. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's definitely one where we hope that we're prepared if something did happen where we live. We do live in a in a um, bush environment so we're, we're in a in a flame zone area as far as where we built so we've got our our plans in place if something did happen and you know what we would do if we you know if I was away fighting the fire myself and you know they're at home so mm. yeah which is important we've you know done a few of these interviews now and it seems like there's been a recurring theme of that um, you know kind of the image of putting on your oxygen mask before you help others and making sure that your your plan is in place to then go out and be of use to other people. As we explore these kind of themes of resilience and, and what it means to be able to bounce back and, and, and to kind of live lives that um, are able to both prepare for and, and kind of, I guess, heal from the crisis events that happen, um, what are some of the things in, in your life that have helped you to build your kind of resilience muscles or that are part of those things that keep you, you know, in a healthy place to be able to serve the community? Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's definitely, yeah, whether it be within the service or with outside of it, there's obviously always things that, you know, get thrown at you that you've got to just kind of come in and deal with. And I guess, you know, from a day-to-day work environment, you know, as well. So there's definitely a lot that I've learned from, you know, particularly within the RFS, you know, to handle, you know, high-stress situations where I guess things happen so quickly that you've got to actually, you know, really 
make decisions on the fly. Like you, you obviously you you've got your skills that you you know, you know how to put in place, but again in the natural environment things just change that you know really really quickly so i guess in business that that you know definitely helps um mm. you know i guess being able to think on your feet as quickly as that but um look it's one where um you know definitely being able to see um you know the worst and the best in people as well that um you learn how people you know tend to react as well um you know in in different stressful environments whether that's you know for you know positive or negative as well so again you can kind of take those learnings into you know any situation in life whether it's work or or social Mm. so we've kind of touched on um that you've seen lots of like the best and the worst ways that we deal with these situations in communities do you have any um maybe particular stories that you could share with us about where you've seen that like the best ways community have dealt with crises and maybe the worst yeah I guess there's I mean from the from the best um there's a couple of situations there was actually one on on Christmas day of all all times that I actually had to go and fight a fire on Christmas day so we'd we'd sat down at my my parents place for you know our lunch and you know our pager went off and it was quite early on in my service um and um yeah we we said we're off and my my parents didn't question it they knew that we were doing you know the right thing and you know obviously if we didn't turn up you know who was going to fight that fire so we went out to the fire and and uh it was actually in quite a remote community and obviously being on christmas day it was one where our normal resources you know weren't always available so what sticks in my mind and this is probably yeah, more than 15 years ago was that there was a family that we were actually um, protecting their house and they actually gave up their their Christmas lunch and dinner and actually fed us because we didn't actually have any food. So that was was really humbling at the time. We, we refused and said, no, look, we're all good. It's yours. And they just kept mm. insisting that, you know, that we do that. And um, there was another time which was actually in the lead up to Christmas and it was actually my first campaign fire. So, you know, campaign fire being, you know, I guess running over multiple days and uh, it was actually down in Sydney uh, in the Georges River and we'd gone into a, a community on Pleasure Point and this fire actually had cut off our escape route and um, so we were stuck in, in this um, street and the only way out was by water. And um, again, you know, we were, I think it was, you know, coming into our 12th hour on the fire line and, you know, we hadn't uh, only had the food that we had with us and this family came up to us and, and she was cutting up a Christmas cake that she'd actually made, you know, for Christmas Day and, and um, you know, handing it out. And I guess that's, you know, things like that where you see people, um, I guess, you know, pretty much almost losing everything but you know, giving up what they can. Um, mm. It's definitely a humbling you know, experience mm. like that. Those kind of things must um, must inspire you to keep doing that when you see the best of the human spirit. I mean, that's what you're that's what you're really fighting to protect, isn't it? It's not houses; it's mm. it's community, it's it's people. Um, so to see those examples of um, yeah, people really taking care of each other, yeah, must must be something that helps you to continue, right? It definitely, and 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 even from um, like we had a, a a huge fire in our local area at, at uh, Kilcare, and it's you know it's it's definitely an, an aging population, and there were, you know, we at the time we didn't have the resources, you know, when the fire first hit to actually be able to go and door knock in every house, and it was amazing seeing the community where there were people that were you know capable of going and actually helping, and they were actually you know where there were you know people that were. Uh, unable to get out of their house themselves, that the community just you know, saw what needed to happen and actually just lifted and, and actually mm. you know, came to help. So 
you know, in a, in a crisis where, you know, potentially they, they had the chance to lose everything of their own, but yet, you know, they're putting them, you know, others ahead of themselves. What about, um, yeah, the other side of the, the coin? What about some of those situations you see and you go, you know, this shouldn't happen again or this is really a, a, an opportunity to learn mm-hmm. or to teach in, in community where, you know, the, the kind of worst side of what happens? Yeah, probably the, the one that sticks to mind the most was, again, it was some years ago, I was actually uh, at a fire where, again, in a remote area, in a, in a farming area where, you know, there was a farmer that... Um, you know, it was his livelihood, so you couldn't really, um, I guess it was the way in which he went about it. But, um, yeah, we were we were drafting from a dam um, to be able to get you know, uh, additional water to keep fighting this fire, and we had um, helicopters also coming in with their buckets to take water out of his dam. And, um, yeah, we were just drafting um, into our truck uh, to fill our tank up, and I looked over and there's a, a, this farmer standing there with a shotgun and, um, you know, basically you know, yelling and abusing us to, you know, to leave his water alone. Um, and as I said, I kind of understood it from one, one aspect. That's his livelihood. That's what he needed to, you know, to grow his crops. And he was trying to protect that. But we're also there to, you know, to do our job and, you know, ultimately protect his assets as well. Um, and I guess it was really, he didn't quite understand the process of how that actually works. So, you know, from a, if we do take water from, from a landholder, they'll actually replace the water um, at a later date. So it was one where once we had a conversation with him, you know, he was a, he understood and calmed down. But it was just that initial, mm. you know, um, we're doing we're there to do the right thing, um, but yet, you know, he didn't see it the same way. Um, so that that's probably one that sticks to mind. Um, but look, generally speaking, um, you know, most people obviously realise we're volunteers, we're there to do a job, um, and that you know they they're there to help. Um, if we need to, and, and, and generally listen to what we ask them to do. Mm. Yeah, interesting that um, someone can turn like that too. It's just a lack of education. Um, and then once you inform someone, oh, you know, we are actually looking out for you, that they can kind of go, oh, oh I, see the, I see the value in this or, yeah, I see the worth in that. Mm. Mm. I was reading through um, some of the things that you've, done and what you do with the um in your position um and they just seem like very intense situations like helicopter flights remote areas as we talked about land searches sling loading which i don't even know (laughs) what that means um but i i was really interested in how you deal with those kind of high stress situations and how do you feel the fear and then do it anyway yeah, look, I, I guess it, it, it does come back to, um, you know, doing it for so long. And I guess, you know, fear is one of those things that, um, you know, uh, you've got to be able to, you know, maintain. And I guess adrenaline, um, you know, even now, I mean, it doesn't matter really what the call, you still get that hit, but it's just learning how to control it and, you know, to main, you know, you have, you know be calm in those situations. And, and definitely from a, you know, from a remote area perspective, you know, when we, you know, there's different there's different tasks. So some days, um, you know, we'll be positioned with a helicopter with a crew of three or four of us as a preemptive measure, um, and particularly on a you know, very high or high you know, high fire danger. And there's been lightning strikes. You know, in a particular area, we'll be positioned with that helicopter, so that we're ready to go within five minutes of a fire um, being notified. Um, so obviously, it's that that initial 
you know, surge of adrenaline where you've, you know, boarding the helicopter and you're getting all your equipment ready and then, you know, you've got your flight time, you know, out to wherever it is. And, and that obviously depends on the area we're covering, but it could be, you know, up to an hour that you're in the air before you actually get to the, um, to the fire. So it's kind of riding those waves because you can have that initial hit and then you kind of relax and then you mm. actually get to the job and then you've got to, you know, I guess come, you know, get back up and ready for, you know, for the task at hand. And, you know, in that environment, it's it's one where, you know, we've got three different options of how we actually enter the fire. So the helicopter can either land on the ground, we can do a hover exit where we actually step um, off the, the skids of the helicopter that's hovering above the ground, yeah, or we winch out of the helicopter. So we kind of go in those, you know, land, hover, and winch is our last resort. So it's one where it um, obviously, you know, it's trying to, you know, remember all the skills that we've learnt. We've got to research every year. Um, mm. for what we do um, but it's a yeah you know, I guess it's just trying to control you know that fear as well and it's something that um, I, I always respect fear because it's mm. one where um, if you if if you're not in respect of it that things start to go wrong so mm. um, but it's yeah definitely um, you know looking at that that bigger picture of what we're doing within that fire because there's so many variables that we've got to weigh up as a as a crew before we go in to make sure we're we're safe ourselves Mm. And minimize the risk. Yeah, the image came into my mind just before of um, like an athlete doing a high intensity sprint, for example. You know, their race starts a long time before they are on the blocks. Uh, it starts with the routine of getting ready and then being able to do that high performance activity. And then after that, there's a warm down. There's kind of a stretching of the muscles, recovery. Are there things that you need to do after those situations that are kind of part of that warm down or part of that um, processing what you've been through? Yeah, definitely. It's one where, um, again, like in the raft side of things or even in, in a brigade level, um, you know, we're generally a small team, um, you know, of, of no more than six you know, on, in a brigade and then, um, you know, at a, at a raft level three or four. So it's one where, you know, we'd always sit down, you know, at the end of an incident and have a debrief. And, you know, just listen to each other's experiences. And it's one where it's surprising where you kind of look at it and go, we've all experienced the same thing, but everybody picks up on different aspects of, mm. you know, what happened during the day. And I, and I guess there was one incident that kind of pops to mind with that whole debrief and how we'd all, um, you know, looked at it at a different aspect was um, back in 2000, on New Year's Day 2006, there was the a fire that came through um, the Warway Bay area and, and we were actually had a, a very um, close incident where we'd actually had a, an overrun in our vehicle of, of fire. So we actually had to go into an emergency drill and, and um, you know, throughout that situation on that day, it was interesting that we all took on different, um, we all were affected differently and it was one where for me, like I always felt in control. I was driving the vehicle so I, you know, had that steering wheel in my hand and I was, you know, whereas the others were obviously sitting there with, with no control. And it was interesting just how they, how that perspective was actually different when we actually sat down and did that debrief mm. and listened to everybody's perspective on how it all happened. And I guess it gave you that, that broader context of what everybody else went through and how they were handling it. And, um, I mean, the outcome of that too was that, you know, again, people, some people, you know, um, went on the next day like it was just another day and others actually took weeks to, to get over it. So, yeah, quite an interesting how everybody has yeah, different reactions to different stressful environments. Mm. Which is important to keep in mind, right, just to know that we are going to process things differently 
and the way there's no right or wrong way as long as we allow for different people to be able to do what's going to help them to yeah debrief and process Mm. yeah um i'm thinking too for our listeners you obviously chris have um, a lot of skills and key lessons you've learnt from the RFS. Do you have maybe one that um, that would be amazing for our listeners to kind of adopt or something that you've learnt through the RFS that you wish other people would could learn or, or take up for themselves? Probably, I mean, definitely in, in, a, in an environment of, um, I guess uh, if I look at my house, I mean, being prepared. That's that's the biggest thing I would take out to anything because it's one where, you know, I guess if you people look at it and go a fire is going to impact an urban interface and it's going to be the houses that are right on the edge of the bush that burn and it's not true. Like it can be you can have the best prepared house but, um, you know, it could still you know, be impacted. But it's also, you know, like in that, that 2006 New Year's Day fires, we had houses that burnt down that were two blocks back from that, ur- that interface to the bush and it was purely because they weren't prepared. Um, and so that's probably the biggest learning I'd come out of in, in, in anything, whether it's in business, whether it's in, in, you know, in uh, the RFS, it's being prepared so that you know, if the worst does happen, um, you know, you've got everything in place to actually be able to get through that. Mm. Yeah, that's huge. Um, there's a lot of what we're talking about that I think would be um, you know, applicable to people all over the place, but... Um, particularly thinking about the Central Coast and this place where we live, um, what's your kind of vision of a, a resilient Central Coast and, and where do you see strengths or maybe areas for growth and improvement where we live? Yeah, look, I, I look at, I guess, my local community where I live. Um, it's definitely a, a very um, resilient uh, community and it's one where community spirit is actually very high. I mean, it's the end of a road. It's, you know, they kind of feel isolated to where they are. And I guess that's, you know, from, you know, um, when you look at the different groups within the community that all pull together, um, and even today, like, there's a, a phone tree that's been set up so that within the different um, organisations that if we did have an incident in our area, they all know who the proper contacts are. Um, so that way everybody's prepared and have the most up-to-date, you know, information as far as, um, again, because there is one road in and one road out, that if we did get cut off, where to go, what to do, um, so that's something I guess, you know, from, from my community is prepared and they've actually gone and done the legwork to actually be prepared for any incident that's in our area. Whereas there's definitely other communities that um, I guess that, you know, don't have that drive to be ready that if something did happen and it could just be anything from simple as a storm, you know, through to, you know, a bushfire. But, um, you know, they've, they've got things in place to deal with any of those situations. What do you think... Um do you think it was just the fact that there's only one road that kind of put the pressure on for that or was there a driving, you know, what sparked that? Do you know? Um, look, I think it was in the end it was, um, you know, after a number of incidents where we were cut off for multiple days. So there was the, you know, the storm, there was a storm back in the, the late 90s, I think it was 97, there was a storm and then we had, you know, storms in the, in the early 2000s as well where we were cut off with no electricity for, you know, multiple days if not weeks and, you know, and I guess that was uh, being such a small community where, 
they realised that there were you know, going to be shortfalls if if you know we were the the wider community were affected. There's only so many resources can go so far. So I believe that's where they kind of you know looked at well, what can we do ourselves if you know if we are cut off. Um, so it's something that I guess in my you know twenty plus years of being in that area where you know it's definitely grown over time, and I think it's it's definitely the best that it's ever been right now. Mm. I definitely think that's a theme um, through a lot of our conversations is the importance of um, community connectedness, being able to speak to each other and have conversations. And that's important for, you know, fire safety, but then also mental health things as well. Um, I was wondering, are there any things you do to kind of keep your mental health in check? Yeah, look, it's I, – um, I actually – me personally, um, I actually take um, – I use I, – I commute to Sydney um, to my office down there. So actually part of my, where I actually feel that I can kind of, I guess, you know, have my own – collect my own thoughts and think about, you know, whether it's stuff that's in in my life, um, personal life, or whether it's work, is actually when I'm driving. I actually, you know, I've got different um, playlists depending on the mood I'm in. And, um, you know, I, I also choose what volume I want to listen to that music at. So that's something I, I guess I use a lot, that downtime to be able to, you know, catch up on my own thoughts. But otherwise it's, um, yeah, through my, through my wife or, you know, a particular close friend um, that I know I can ring or talk to if I, you know, need to. So they're um, definitely areas where I, um, uh, for my own, yeah, mental health will use, utilise. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of things about commuting that aren't so good, but I, I have thought a lot about, you know, the modern world with like 24-7 technology and we're all addicted to social media and all of that just like means we don't have much space often for kind of those those processing moments. Um, so I think the important thing is whether or not you commute, how can people find and carve open those spaces for a bit of um, a bit of silence or a bit of stillness or a bit of loud music or a bit of whatever it is that helps to kind of create some processing mm. space. Um, Chris, I've got heaps out of this conversation. Thanks so much for sharing, um, yeah, your stories and um, your insights. Um, I'd love to just give you the kind of final word for people listening to this. Actually, what I'd love is is it's really cool to think about your 15-year-old son kind of in some ways following your legacy. As you think about your three-year-old son, what are the things that you would hope that he takes into the future and, um, you know, maybe 20 years down the track? What are, what are your kind of hopes for him? Yeah, look, I, I um, definitely hope that the values that uh, I guess I was handed down from my parents that, you know, I instill those values into him. And it's a very, very different world, you know, what he's growing up in right now. And I, I look at this year and I look at, you know, in, you know, I guess in a, whether it's five or six years when he can probably understand what we've been through and we, we go back and tell him, you know, you lived through this pandemic of 2020 and just, yeah, to see how he actually, uh, what he remembers and what he takes out of it. But, um, yeah, look, I, I hope he has the same opportunities that, you know, I've had and my son, my eldest son has had. Um, and um, as I said, really just those values that, you know, that were instilled into me and um, from my parents that he, he takes those away as well. Mm. Well, they obviously do a good job and I'm sure you're doing a good job. So thank you so much for, um, yeah, all that you, you give in a voluntary way to our community and, and to giving as well by sharing on this podcast. It's awesome. No problem at all. Thank you. Wow, we're so privileged to have spoken to both Chris and Michelle. 
What has stood out to me from both our conversations is the importance of looking out for one another, but also our need to take care of our own mental health first. In emergency situations, we can only make the best of a situation if we have given ourselves the opportunity to plan, process, rest and heal. You might be like Chris and have a confidant or have some time alone in the car to think and process or you might be like Michelle and you might enjoy taking time to reflect in nature. In whatever ways you rest, make sure to make it a priority so you can create a better environment for yourself, your family and your wider community. Then you can work from those stockpiles of peace to move out into the community and be a force for good. What stood out to you from this conversation? One of the key themes of Emergency Ready Now is community connectedness. So, if this episode was useful for you, we encourage you to share it with someone and have a conversation about it. You can also help more people find this by giving it a rating and review on Apple Podcast or sharing it through your social media. Make sure you hit subscribe so you can listen to next week's episode as soon as it's released. Until then, let's take care of each other continue to become emergency ready now.